Hi, Will. Search for understanding. Hmm. Yeah. That's what we're going to explore today. So how did you come up with this concept? So literally, I, I didn't have to come up with it because it's, I think that the story of my life and I think that's the story of everybody's life. From the moment, I think very early in life, we try to understand what's going on around us. Mm. You know, um, some people, they don't have to confront that too early if everything around them is like cozy, in order, not chaotic. Some people, because their upbringing was more chaotic, or let's say your parent went through a divorce, you lost one of your parents early, you start, under, you start asking questions, or what's going on? <clears throat> you know, what's, and, but I think it's, it's um, a search that everybody goes through. And sooner or later, we confront, do I keep asking? and upset everyone around me because it's question probably everyone else are asking themselves. Whatever the question is, you know, it's like, if you're part of a group, any group, there are things that you never question. And the moment you start asking those questions, you know, very little children ask question or um, how children come to life. Those are easy questions when you get someone who dies around you, the second question is, okay, why do, why do people die? That's another question and families will, cultures will give you an answer for that to calm you down. Then if you see destruction around you, if you see hatred or if you see love, whatever it is that you see, somehow you're trying to figure them out. Right. And your parent and your culture usually help you Name them, give them a name, give that emotion a name, give that feeling a name, what it means. It, they help you give it meaning. And because when you give it meaning, you feel comfortable again mm. because it's a meaning we share with the group. So it calms us down because we all know what we're talking about. It gives that sensation that I understand what's going on in my world. Until something extreme happens again and it makes you question everything you understood again. And you can go back to the group or whatever that group is and you ask, act as if that event never happened. It's an exception to the rule and the meaning we give ourselves, and you stay in the group. Or you can follow the question. I think you can follow the question. I think often and and really depending on the circumstance it may not be the right approach but we're all we're generally programmed to look for absolutes so we do we don't like things untied we don't like questions unanswered we want to find the answer the absolute that can give us the peace of mind so it is to to go beyond that you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable yes yes you know there is so for some reason in cultures, in our culture, um, we look up to successful people and try to mimic our life to their life. Yeah. And usually whenever you talk to any of those billionaires, they're making interviews, they're talking on the TV, they're writing books, and they say, follow your passion. Right. You know, which is a very tricky thing to say because passion is just an emotion. I think passion is finding something that you love mm -hmm. that can generate some kind of fire mm -hmm. and learning how and figuring out how you can make money from that. Mm -hmm. You know, I read something great the other day. It said basically you need three passions in life, one to keep you creative, one to keep you in shape and one to make you money. Mm -hmm. and I was like, kind of true, <laughs> right? Three passions in life. Mm -hmm. But it's like for me that the concept of follow your passion, I mean, I'm, let's say it that way. Suppose you're a passionate person, okay? If you're a passionate person, that means you color everything you do with passion. You see where I'm going right, with it? Well, you, yeah, you dive right into it. Exactly. Let's say you're a passionate person and you say, 
okay, follow your passion. So what does that mean for me? For me, it never meant anything, follow my passion, because there's nothing I do, everything I do, I'm passionate about. Okay, so what does that mean? So what do I follow? You know? And I think that's taking a little bit literally. I think mm-hmm. when, when people will say follow your passion, it's looking at it from a career point of view, it's really finding that thing that lights your fire. And not everything's going to light your fire. There I mean, you go. Cleaning the toilets. Here you, you might go. do it with zest, but it doesn't. It's not your passion necessarily. But, but, but you see, and that's, and that's where it becomes tricky because that answer of follow your passion, I do not believe it's enough a guide. I'm not saying right. people saying that or well, doing it on surface. A lot of people don't surface. even really understand what their passion is. Is there we go? You know, and I think you know what I found to be really interesting is people always want to ask me, "Well, what do you do outside of work? How do you decompress?" This kind of thing, as if to to paint, as if to paint the ideal human being as somebody with all these varied interests and, I'm, yes. and I answer I study languages I read yes. you know beyond going to the gym and working out yes. my passion you know my, my job is my lifestyle and it's funny because people don't really know how to respond to that and their instinct is to kind of paint you as being somebody who isn't um, who just works all the time and isn't you know multifaceted or something which is completely untrue I think for myself but We've created this idea that you have to have all these other passions outside your work. And it's hard for people to reconcile. My work is my passion. I'm a writer. So I, everything I do revolves around that or revolves around learning or content or creativity. And I just always find it very interesting that people are obsessed with this idea of of having to have a multitude of passions and decompress or whatever Exactly. They, they, they have an image of things and yeah. they follow images, you know, and they think image is reality. No, you know. Social conditioning. Exactly. But, but you, you see, and, and that's where I go again. So follow your passion. What does that mean, follow your passion? And I think, a, 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 and I'm saying that, in total honesty, I am a passionate person. I mean, you put me to clip, clean up the toilet, the first thing I will think of is how to clean that toilet in a way that no one did before. Okay. And it's not about cleaning the toilet anymore for me. It's about how do I clean it in a way no one did before. Or problem solving, making it faster or more efficient. Here you go. And, but what did I just follow there? I did not follow my passion. I followed the question. I think that's a very better guide. Follow the question you want to answer. Because that's what it is. Because when I get in that toilet and I say, I don't want a clean toilet. And I say, how do I find a way to clean that toilet in a way that I'm happy with it? Okay, that becomes a business model right there. Because I'm thinking, oh, so many people are thinking the same thing as me. How many people are thinking that? Do I build a robot to do it? Or do I hire someone else to do it? Is that's a business model. So the thing of follow your passion, I mean, it's a nice thing to say, but it's not practical. Follow the question. What is the question? And when you dig deep enough into that question, whatever that question is that you want to follow, that's when you start discovering yourself. Because what what will that do to you? In my case, I will tell you what it does to me and what it did to me you are transformed by the question because for you to answer it, you'll need to look at things differently than the way you were looking at them before. Why is that? Because the reason it's a question is because I don't have the answer. That means my group, my people, my understanding of the world is not enough to give me an answer. So for me to find that answer, I need to move away from where I am today to go where the answer is. And that is evolution. Mm. And that is that search. But like you said, when you have that question, whatever that question is, as simple as how do I clean the toilet in a way that has never been done before? Nobody asks themselves that question. Everybody thinks, oh, this is how you clean a toilet. Why? Or looking at it on a flip side, if you're cleaning the toilet perfectly fine, if it's broke, don't f- you, if it's not broke, you don't need to fix it. 
Exactly. I mean, you also have to pick and choose where you want to delegate your energy, mental energies to. So if you know how to clean a toilet, clean the damn toilet and put that mental energy into something that's a little bit more meaningful in your life. So, you know, and that's one thing, and I get where you're coming from, and I guess for me, often, when I, when I figure out the right way of doing it, yes, I like to just know that it's, I don't need to reserve any more brain attention to that, that my, my brain reserves can be put into something else that's more meaningful to me than worrying about, you know, cleaning the toilet. Exactly, because that wasn't a question you wanted to follow on, you know, but... And, 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 and the reason I'm, I'm insisting on the follow the question is because life situation, any situation can pop up the right question in your head. But we don't follow those questions, you know? We just, we just leave them. So I have a question, why is this that way and not somewhere? So simple question you ask, why People die, for example. Mm. It's a question everybody asks themselves. And it's a, it's a very cultural question, and especially in the U.S., we have a very strange relationship with death that other cultures don't necessarily have, mm-hmm. where there's a different acceptance. Here, we it's something we're extremely scared of mm-hmm. to some degree, even though we make up in a better place, not in suffering, all these kinds of things to try to appease us. Mm-hmm. Death is something that we are all pretty much terrified of. Mm-hmm. And that is a cultural conditioning thing that a lot of other cultures don't necessarily share. And that's not to say they don't mourn and that they don't have these really intense experiences with it. But I think our relationship here is is very odd with death. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, I lost my dad when I was nine years old. So that question for me was inevitable. Why people die? Now you can give me all the causal thing, the physical thing that happened, but for me, it wasn't enough. I keep asking myself, okay, so what, what's life, death? Why do you live? How? So those questions that I think everybody else is asking themselves, but you just put them aside and you go do something else. So that's one question that I had. I had other question around me. It's like I was seeing systematically people making decisions that are destructive to them and the people they love. And I said, why? Why do we do that? You know? Why do we self-sabotage? Exactly. Those questions I started asking myself very early. So I used to ask grown-up those questions. Why do we do... And you know what they did to me? And that's, that's how, how my life ended up, that I was 12 years old. I read the whole collection of Freud. Mm. Understanding psychology, you say, okay, why is it then that we do? Because... Sexual fucked up. Well, <laughs> that's... <laughs> That's not Sorry. all fraud is about. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh my God. I'm just joking. You know, but the concept, the concept I, I took from it, I was 12 years old, but what blew my mind when I finished all that collection was how little we know about why we do the things we do. Right. You know, the concept of that man is an iceberg, that you see the epiphenomenon, which is in the iceberg, it's only 15%. 85 is below water you know and of course i i may agree or disagree that there's a separation between consciousness and unconscious and and conscient conscient. i mean that's that's his terminology of things but what i got from it when i was 12 years old is someone might be saying something but they don't really know why they're doing what they're doing right you know and that i was 12 years old and that blew my mind you know and right. this guy was a respectable guy that another grown up told me those questions you're asking you need to read this so he thought he gave me one book but from that book i had more questions so i ended up reading the whole collection right you know i think it's something i know, i remember myself as a child always being extremely curious and probably why I, it became a journalist but always asking questions i always wanted to understand people's lives i wanted to understand 
for me it was more about them and, and what they were doing and the reasons things were happening. And I think too often, I experienced as a child, and I still see it a lot now, children are kind of reprimanded for mm-hmm. asking, asking too many questions. questions. And it, for me, it became almost a source of, you know, stop it. Stop asking so many questions. It's annoying to people. And I think it's really detrimental because at that age, when you're so curious to understand the world um, and then to kind of be you know, told that that's inappropriate behavior. And that I think that happens in, in, to too many children and that really cuts off that curiosity and that creativity because you associate it then with, with being in trouble. Yeah. In my case, my uncle gave me that book to shut me up. Right. He thought I wouldn't read it. Right. But I actually read it and read the whole collection and then went back with more questions. Right. He was like, you read everything of course oh my god you you crazy child go away (laughs) get away from now i have more questions you know what i mean yeah now i have more questions because i say because what i was reading is about myself as well i said oh so i don't even know my motivations so it's like i may have a trauma here or something deep in me that is pushing me to do something but then because i'm smart I will give myself an explanation of why I'm doing it. Mm. But the explanation has absolutely no reason and connection. When what, and that's when I start saying, okay, for me what it made me is like I stop calling people liars because they're actually not lying. They, don't, they just don't connect. You know what I mean? It's like, so that's when I stop listening to what people say and just look at what they do. Yeah. Because I realize that there's no connection. That's what I got from reading those things. So now I completely stop listening to people trying to tell me things and I just observe. What do they do? Now you know who they are. You know, so very early. And that just opened more questions for me. More questions. For example, the other big thing that was another question after that was. So, if I don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing, how much can I really know? You know, how, much, how, does, how do we come about making decisions? Mm. And I'll tell you what I found out. So, I have a story for that one. <laughs> so, imagine it's Thanksgiving or New Year's Eve and mom is cooking a ham. Okay, gonna put it in the oven. So take the ham, cut the two extremes, teaching her daughter how to do it. Cut the two extremes, put it in a pan, and boom, in the oven. And the daughter asks, Mom, why did you cut the right and left extreme of the ham? It's a piece of meat we can use. And actually, I think it would be better not to open it so the juice can stay in. So why are you cutting it? She said, no, it's because it gave it better taste. So the daughter said, mom, who told you that? Mom said, my mom told me that. Grandma told me that. That's how she taught me how to cook. Let's call grandma. Call grandma and said, mom, why do you cut the two extreme of the ham before we put it in the oven. He said, oh, my darling, it's because when we were, when I was growing you up, we only had a very small pan and I couldn't buy a bigger one. So we cut the extreme. We will use the, the, the other meat for something else. But for the ham on Thanksgiving, we had a... It needed to fit. That's all it was. So literally... What we take as tradition or solution or past limitation that we carry on. And we never ask, why are we doing things the way we're doing them? We never ask. Like that little girl, because mom was probably a modern mom, mom answered and asked grandma, why did you do it? Because usually what you say, stop asking that question. This is how it's done. Shut up and do it. Yeah. We do that to ourselves. Instead of following the question, that's what I'm saying. It's much better to tell someone, follow the question and follow the passion. Because passion is an emotion. If I'm a passionate person, so what do I follow? 
But if I follow the question, that's something very different. And you'll piss off a bunch of people. But you don't have to care because that's the cost of finding answers. The cost of finding answers is that you will move away from people that stop asking that question because for some time they say, you know what? I cannot find an answer. There is no answer. Well, but there's a very big difference between I cannot find an answer and there is no answer. You cannot find an answer because you're looking at the wrong places. So your instinct as a human being must be, if there's no answer here, where else can there be one and I look for it? Mm. That's a much better guide than follow your passion. I'm not saying don't be passionate. For me, being passionate is an emotion that you color things you do or not. But if I have a question, a pressing question, even if I'm passionate about it or not, I will not stop until I find the answer. The questions keep you alive. And we need to find them, you know? And when the answers you have are not enough, do not settle. Because when we settle, that's when you create rituals. Yeah. Like that ham. It was a ritual of cooking the ham. It wasn't the best way to cook the ham. Because it was grandma couldn't afford a bigger pan. But there's something also <laughs> nice about rituals. But I guess what comes with that is understanding how the ritual came to be. Yes. To, to understand exactly where it came from exactly. as opposed to having to change it. I, yeah. Because the connection of that story of three generations is really the love of teaching each generation. Right. That's the ritual. And passing down Here the you message. go. But it is also the responsibility to connect to the intent of the ritual, not the ritual. Why was it that you were cutting the ham? Mm. Because the real message is about love, it's about cooking for the family and having fun. But the way I do it today might be different than the way my grandparents were doing it. Right. Because if I, if I keep doing things the way three generations ago we used to do them, you're not honoring your culture. You're just stuck in the past. Right. Because honoring your culture is keeping it alive. And things that are alive, you ask the same questions, but you come with different answers because more is available. I think it's always an interesting question to ask people, and they will often struggle to, struggle to answer it, is what people's intentions are for things. Yes. If somebody comes to me with a pitch of something, as a journalist... I always have to go, what is your intention mm -hmm. with this? And everybody has an agenda, and there's completely nothing wrong with that. Publicists have agendas to make money from their clients. Lobbyists have agendas. Uh, people want to have their side. And there's agenda isn't a bad thing, but people find it very uncomfortable to talk about intentions a lot of the time yes. when they're trying to push a narrative. And I find it's a great way to really, it's a great way, it's a great technique to really, you know, if somebody's giving you a hard time about something, instead of getting hostile or angry or arguing, I will often just say, what is your intention with this? What are you trying to get out of this? And it really shuts them up or, or stumbles them or forces them to go that little bit deeper to try to understand why they're picking the fight or why they're um, trying to push you a certain way. And it's, it's really a de-escalating tool. Yes. You, you use it as a de-escalating tool because it does its purpose, which is break the ritual. Mm. Because ritual bring conflicts. Whatever ritual will bring conflict because you say, I do this that way and I say, I do this that way. And you say, okay, but why are you doing it? What's your intent? We might agree on the intent. We just have different way of doing it because right. we adhere to different rituals. And it's disarming because it's not accusing anybody. Nothing. It's not being insulting. It's no. not. It's just purely saying. What do you want? In a, but, but the word intention, there's something about it. What do you want is almost too simplistic. Uh, I when agree. you say to people, what is your intention with this? What are you trying to achieve. get out of mm -hmm. this, achieve? Mm -hmm. It's that little bit they kind of have to 
yes. go that little bit deeper. Whereas, what do you want? Well, I want you to fix the. I got it. You know, I want you to. If you're having a fight with your spouse, I want you to clean the dishes. Mm-hmm. Why are you yelling? What is your intention about this? What is your? I agree with you. I agree with you, and that's that's principle zero in building anything. And oftentimes, maybe there isn't even intention. I just, I just wanted you to do that. And yeah. Okay, that's great. Don't yell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think as 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 a human being, human beings, if we agree with a, letting ourselves asking questions, like you said, we will be surprised how much de-escalating, how l- much less conflict we will have in our life and in the world. It's because we all want the same thing, but we have different rituals of getting there and we're fighting on the rituals. Yeah. We're fighting on the rituals. And really learning to de-escalate situations are, are really great human skills that I mm-hmm. wish more people had mm-hmm. that mediator ability yes. to do because I think we would all be a lot more productive yes. in that sense. Yes. You know, but it's, it's always about, about the question. So I think after, after I, I, I answered those, once I understood that concept that what someone say and why they're doing it is not connected, that I learned from Freud. So I got back to the same question because the, the reason my uncle gave me that is because he, he, he treated with death a bunch of things. Hey, you'll find answers there, okay? Then I started asking myself, so, not the general question of what is the meaning of life, because that's a too broad question. I start with, if my motivation and my understanding are not connected, no? I mean, I, be, I may want to do something, I don't know why, and then I find an example that I read somewhere why I should say, you know, the explanation of, let's say I'm, I'm angry at someone, you know, I want to hit that person. I say, okay, why do you want to hit that person? Because they did this, 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 and this to me, okay? Yeah, but my motivation of, of being aggressive has absolutely nothing to do with what that person did to me. Because a non-aggressive person, you can do the same thing, but you will trigger a different reaction. So why does that movement that's external stimulus triggered that reaction is because i have anger okay so where does anger come from and once i understood that dissociation between why i do something and why i'm really doing it no why i think i'm doing it and why i'm doing it once i get to that point my next question is okay how do i solve it right and to try to solve it that's why i start reading about philosophy right and i start reading those things so i was probably 14, 15, and so, and I started keeping asking. So there was Albert Camus, there was Jean-Paul Sartre, there were Heidegger, all the existentialists. And I started understanding those guys' answer to that question of life. It's about doing. Because don't look for meaning. Don't try to look for meaning. Even if there is no meaning, you still have to do. Because life is about doing somehow. Okay, that's what I got from there. So, from one point I said, I don't listen to every, anything someone does. I just look at what they do. That tells me much more who they are than what they're telling me. That's the first thing. And the second thing I got from all the existentialists is, even if there's no meaning, in the end you have to do. Even if you decide not to do, that's also doing. Okay, if you say I'm not doing anything, that's your doing. That's a decision. That's a decision. So you're trapped. You have no, You can't get out of it. Exactly. So our existence is defined much more about what we do than what we are thinking. You know, that's right. Sim- simplifying it. And then I get my next question. So if it's about doing, how do I know what to do? You know, but those, what I'm trying to say is you keep asking those questions and it evolves you. And that third level of question got me into economics. Mm. You know, is how is humanity, how has humanity so far decided how to do things? You know, what's the formula we've built? 
And it's the whole economical science field is about answering that question. Right. What to do? What's the best decision? And we try to build models, all those complex models, or just about that simple question. What do I do with time in the end? That's what they're trying to answer. Yeah. And all the fights, and there's so many mistakes and false assumption on those models, creating patterns that we should avoid, that today we can avoid. But that's another discussion because some people have won Nobel Prize for those things and they're going to defend them to the death. <laughs> right. That's also, well, the problem now that we have with science is the vested interest financially. And whenever exactly. it's very hard to understand what the truth is. Exactly. And I was having a discussion with someone about this yesterday of, of CTE, uh, which is a brain injury that is very debatable as to whether footballers experience it or boxers or even soccer players and other pro athletes. And the problem with it is that the science is, is sketchy at best. But that's not to say that it isn't real, but how much, at what point is there enough evidence to say that it is? And the problem with it was that the, the initial university that sort of did the study on it and had the funding kind of won't back down mm -hmm. now, 10 years later, and maybe admit that, it, can you call it a disease or not? Mm -hmm. Because the, the studies just aren't there either way. And when I was really looking into it, you really just have to question who is funding agendas on either side to say that it exists or it doesn't exist. Yes. And that's the problem I'm sure scientists feel across the board when we are looking for these answers. Are we looking for the answers of who's paying us to look for the answers or are we able to go into these things with a completely neutral point of view? Yes, but, it, but it's hard for a young scientists because I'll give you an... I'll, let's stay in, in the field I understand the most, which is, which is about finance, okay? Yeah. Because... So, I remember when I was looking at anomalies. So the way you make money in finance is because you look for anomalies. What is an anomaly? An anomaly is something that shouldn't happen. So when I see them, that's an advantage to make money. If you see enough of them, you can build a business around that and that is called your fund manager. <laughs> You're right. trading. <laughs> because you see anomalies. Anomalies are things that you say systematically they happen and I can anticipate them and no one can no one else is anticipating them fast enough that's why I have time to make money okay this is the whole finance I, I that's that's resuming what people would say why you pay a money manager but the way you come to the anomalies is very simple you say what is everybody think works which is, what is the established norm? What are the papers that won Nobel Prize? And let me find where they're wrong. Let me find where the assumption is wrong about the way they say things work. And then I look in the market with the data and I can prove they're wrong. Now, if you're trying to win another Nobel Prize, what you do, you write a paper and you publish it. But if you're trying to make money, you don't say anything about it. You just play around with it. You build a model that would exploit exactly that thing that everybody think is not happening. That's how you make money by building hedge funds or whatever it is. You know, you're systematically going against what everybody think is working. So, I mean, you go against science. You're going against what everybody else say is working because you know it's not working. That's literally the whole thing about financial markets. You know, the way you approach that, to be fancy about it, they say there's chaotic model level one, chaotic model level two. Chaotic model level one is nature. That by me measuring it, I do not affect it. But a chaotic model level two is like the stock market. Why is that 
a chaotic model level do? Very simple. The stock market is chaotic, but it is chaotic in a certain way because we have business school telling people what to follow when something happens. So let's say you have a situation in the market. You can anticipate what everyone will do because if they went to the same school, they will behave a certain way based on what they studied. So even though the stock market looked chaotic, but it's not that chaotic because people went to the same school, read the same book, watch the same news, will behave a certain way that you can understand. And those are the big super cycles that you can deal with. Then you can do the same thing weekly, daily, even nanosecond. But within that chaos, because you know people are being, they have attractors. That mean if two modelers in the stock market, for example, they think that it's Brownian motion. What is Brownian motion? Brownian motion means that it's random. You know, that the stock market is random. Let me, let me tell you something. So let's say I have to give people loans in a very big city where you have 100,000 people, okay? So I am a bank and I need to go to that city and start giving people loan on mortgages. So I'm limiting, I'm limiting the case just to show how it doesn't work, okay? So I go to that city and I say, you need a loan, yes. Are you working? Yes. What is your past uh, income? My past income for the last 10 years is that number. Perfect. That's your mortgage. Get your house. I do that for everyone in the town, okay? And my risk model is saying to me, oh, I'm diversified because I give 100 loan to different people with different level of income. One is a manager, one is cleaning the door, and one is an operator worker, okay? Three categories, I diversify everything. And because I have that notion on my head that they're not related, which is a Brownian motion that they use to price those things, they say, I'm covered. Yeah, but what you didn't ask is they all work for the same fabric that is 10 miles away from the city. And when that manufacturing plant will go down, all of them will be affected by the same phenomenon. That is why the Brownian motion logic doesn't make sense. We all know that, but all the models are built like that. So if you're trying to look at the market, you, just, you don't follow those 100 people that you gave loan to. I'm just looking at the number, is that manufacturing growing or is it not growing? Because when it stops growing, it will affect all the models that were built without taking into account that manufacturing that was the cause and not the correlation. You take that misconception between cause and correlation and you explain most of the reason why in all science we're not moving. Right. Because what we do, we take the variable we can explain, we build a model around them. But what happened when that variable wasn't the cause? It was just correlated with my problem, but it wasn't the cause. And we stop asking questions about cause. You learn that very early when you start asking too much question. It's the same concept. You ask too much question because you're starting to question how grandma was cooking the ham, which is with your questioning, you question too much what our elders left us. No, they didn't leave us that. We have to connect to their intent. Those things were limited then. Now you need to keep asking questions about cause. We need to keep going for cause in all science. We have to get away of correlation, get away of statistics. That's another thing I, I've learned. That doesn't mean you don't use it, but know what it is. We need to go to causes. You know, and, and, and again, But we, we, all those things, when I start looking at them and, and my quest continued, so if I know that, why can't I do anything about it? And, and I went to understanding how the brain works, why we do the things we do, 
you know, how, how this world came about, where we come from, what is our DNA heritage that is limiting us or not, what is the culture that is limiting us or not, and, and, you, and you need to keep asking those questions, you know. How much do you think that DNA, certain people are born with more limiting beliefs than the others? What role do you think DNA plays in, I guess, our ability to question things? Do some people come into the world more curious than others? Is there do do some people come into the world with more limiting beliefs of I can't do it, or is it all circumstantial? Somebody grows up in a, a better neighborhood and gets to go to a better school than somebody else who is in a poorer neighborhood and doesn't have the same opportunity. You know, I, I can venture an opinion. I can venture an opinion, and I might change it as I keep learning. But of what I've learned so far, this is the conclusion. This is the hypothesis. Let me call it like that, you know, because I, I don't really have conclusion about anything. It's just I keep I keep pushing. So I make the separation between hardware and software. That's the way I look at, uh, at my life as a human being. There is my hardware and there is my software. My hardware is literally how my physiognomy, my brain function, connection based on the food I had early or not. You know, I'm talking just the physical thing. Because if you didn't have enough food when you were a child, your brain won't work that, that well neither. Okay, so we're talking at a global level. So even if my hardware had a potential of 100, I still needed the intake, the food intake to get to that level. Okay, this is basic, but we don't even think about that, but how many people are not even having that level of intake? Then there's the software, which is the messages I receive that have to do with my family, with... Um, the answers that I have when things happen in life. Literally what it is. You know, that's what I call the software. Because we all have the same questions, but the answer we get usually depends on our culture. So that's what I call the software. So now, I think the question is, how do we move on? Do I move on because my software evolved, or do I move on because my hardware evolved? Okay, I'm making an analogy to explain my understanding of this thing. My understanding of this thing is that they help each other, okay? And that's why I say it's better to follow the questions because when you have a question, whatever that question is, even if it's very simple, what it does, it's making you question the base of all your understanding. When you upgrade that, you made an upgrade in your software. With the same hardware, you become more efficient because your software is upgraded. You keep asking another question. You find another answer. You again upgrade your software. We will get to a time where software upgrade will realize I need to upgrade my hardware. And you stop doing things with your own body to keep moving forward. You'll change your diet. You'll start doing different type of exercise, different type of meditation, different type of things that will help the hardware to keep the software update. Mm. And this is a communion that keeps going on, keeps going on, keeps going on. So literally what I'm saying, I think anyone can have access to everything. It's a question of following the question. But the problem with following the question is, you'll have to let go of what you already know and the people around you because you don't, you're not satisfied with their answers. And it's not always easy to do that, to change group, to change city, to change country, to change friends, you know? It's just not that easy to be an open-minded individual, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, the cost is you're not advancing. Also, there is something about being part of a communal or a group mentality that people love to be 
if you look at politics, that's how people see their identity by being part of that particular community or group. Yes. And so to to question that or to break away from that, even if it's only on certain issues, yes, is is extremely challenging for people to 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 break away from that community component of it. And and again, I'll go back to something we mentioned before. Are you following a ritual or are you following an intent? Because most conflict and most discussions are about rituals. Yeah, they are. They're following ritual. Because the moment you say, what is your intent? What do you want? Sorry, I'll use your thing. What is your intention? Because it's deeper. I agree with that. What are you trying to achieve? Yeah, what are you trying to achieve? What is your intention? And you realize we're arguing on rituals. Yeah. You know, we're arguing on rituals. So how... We get away with rituals because it was how grandma used to cook the ham because we had a smaller pan. How do we cook it today? Because we're not going against grandma by cooking it with both extreme in the oven. We're actually helping grandma seeing what she couldn't see herself. Yeah. But what we keep is the communal of the intent which is we're cooking dinner for the family. Right. That's what we need to be talking about. That's why I like analogy because everybody can take them at their level, what they're looking for, you know, is because it's, it's again. So of course, I mean, there's no way you find answers alone. In my case, those books were written by someone, you know, that went to certain question and then they say, share, this is what I understand from it. But, by me reading Freud, that doesn't mean I agree or disagree with him. It's like, how can he help me get to the next level? And if my next level goes against everything he said, I'm okay with it. Right. I'll tell you something that happens in science. So suppose you're trying to understand physics. The The first phase about understanding physics, they destroy you so much with math so much the math the models the math the models to try to get prepared so you can actually receive the physics lecture or the physics understanding of how the world works because to explain how the world works that's one thing but how do i talk to you i cannot talk in english i have to use math same things happen in finance okay they torture with the math But if I would take the math away and you just talk about what you're saying, it would look stupid sometimes because I can question the assumptions. But what happened is you spend so much time, so much energy studying that math, studying that models, that then you become a soldier of those models because you want to defend them because it costs you so much until you understand them. You don't want someone else coming and saying, you know what, they were not worth that much. No, I'll go against you because I put so much energy into absorbing them, and now you're telling me all that was in waste. So that's the main reason why we stop asking questions. Right. I'll give you an example of a real life example of something like that. So one of my business partners, at some point, one of my business partners, a very good friend, He was successful in his, li- in his past life before we started doing business, but wasn't that successful. But he was successful, but he wasn't that successful. What's successful? But that's the point. That's the, that's the conflict in his head. Who are you comparing yourself to? Exactly. So he knows he could have achieved more. And when he compares himself with what he calls success, he's a loser. But when, you, when he compares himself with everybody else around him, he's a complete success, okay? So why does that matter? Because it was terrible for business. It was terrible for business. Because in every conversation, every time we could think of an idea that would be extremely successful, he wouldn't use it. Because it would have to make him confront, why didn't I think of that before? In so my, it's ego. 
Exactly, but ego, ego is, is a big name, but I'm going through the mechanism of it. Yeah. Okay, the mechanism of it is you're, you're trying to do your best, but if doing your best implied destroying the image you have of your past, you won't do it. So we would let go of very interesting business opportunities. He wouldn't do it because that will put into question his past success, will make his past success look so pale that he couldn't tolerate it. Because he would have asked myself, so what I've been doing before if I didn't realize that this opportunity was there? So for me, it was really bad, you know what I mean? Because I, I wanted to build. Mm. And, but understanding, that's where psychology helps, you know, it's understanding the biases of our brain. And I always check myself for those biases. You know, um, that's, a whole, that's a whole study of um, behavioral finance. All cognitive science explain how we, how we understand reality is not reality. You know, that's, that's what it is. It's you're holding on to an image, you know, because you don't want to ask the question. You don't want to let go of how grandma was cooking that, that ham. And this is real life story. We're talking about not making money, making decisions that destroy money so it doesn't destroy the image. Right. This is crazy. So this goes all ego over the place. Ego is not crazy though. Ego, ego is the bane of existence. I mean, from the beginning of time, ego, ego really is the definer. But the thing is, the thing is, I think ego is a too bigger name, okay? What would you call it? I operate with this with my past conclusion. Your past conclusion is your enemy. When you hold on, I mean, I'll give you an example. The universe is infinite. That means it doesn't have a center. If someone say, I know the center of the universe, they're lying. There is no center. That means you cannot hold on to anything fixed. Whatever that conclusion is. Because as you move on, you'll understand different answers. But what never changes is the intent. What was I trying to do? Oh, by then, that was the ritual. That was the image that I have of what success looked like. Then you move on in life. It looks something different. You adopt the new ritual. But treat them as they are rituals. The intent, the questions are what keeps you moving so when i'm in business with someone the question we're trying to answer is the question that all economics is trying to answer with what i have how can i produce the most that's it yeah but if then comes that my past conclusions say that the most we can produce is 10 and i say no we can produce 30 we're in trouble because everything that can produce 30 you will push it away because you don't want to let go of, I can only do 10. Now you got to upgrade yourself. Here we go. So that's why I'm saying when we say ego, ego is too, it's too undefined. It's like passion. You know, it's like follow your passion. No, follow the question. Okay, what is ego? Your past conclusion. That's all. You know, your past conclusion. That's, it's, that's simple. Someone can teach you in life you have to be humble. Okay. And you start being humble in situation where you shouldn't be humble. Right. That's also ego. That's also ego because you're holding on to a past conclusion that doesn't respond to this conversation, to right. this situation you're in. So being ego is not only people that are arrogant. No, ego is holding on to past conclusion, whatever that conclusion is. So the skill there, I think, is to be able to read situations. Yes. To be able to not, to know when... I mean, we're all multifaceted people. We all have very different dimensions to who we are. The certain people that will see a certain part of you, your family will see a different part of you, your colleagues will see a different part of you. But it's really knowing and having that, I think it's a, really an intuitive sense to many degrees of when to use what parts of you in what situations, mm -hmm. when to be the humble person. When exactly. to be a, a little bit more of the self-promoter. Read the situation. When to be the family man. When to be the the boss. Or when to be the follower. I think 
that's that's really a key to success on, in so many facets of life is being able to take a moment to read a situation and to adapt to that situation seamlessly. Exactly that. Because I have no pre-vision or conclusion before entering the situation. Mm. And that is what peace, what, what is the trouble. Because to be able to do that, you have to all the time go back to the question and not to the ritual. And people define themselves by rituals. Right. And you go on autopilot. I ask anyone, how do you price an option? They will all use that Brownian motion thing. And we all know it doesn't work. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. You know what the answer is? What else do you got? Yeah, the thing is, unless I admit that it doesn't work, I don't look for anything else. And when someone comes with, with an understanding that is so radical against that Brownian motion, you will not listen. Because that would mean all that time and all that money I spent to study, you're going to tell me it was in vain? No, it wasn't in vain. Because it's about keep asking questions. Right. It's not about defending what I know. It's not about defending what I learned. Because you stop upgrading this thing. You know? And, and that's the thing. Because when mom, when grandma was cooking, the pan was smaller. That's why she wasn't cooking the whole ham. As we move on, when you look at this world today, the amount of things we could do, but we're not adjusting because we're still holding on to the whole, the whole things. You know, we're, we're fighting about rituals. Mm. We're fighting about rituals. But that push, as you see, me following question, got me into so many great things that I'm learning all the time. I had to learn about physics, astrophysics. I had to learn about neuroscience. I had to learn about molecular biology. I had to learn about all the religion in this world. I had to learn about so many things about how we learn, which is a, just to answer questions. Right. Uh, but I think even if you think about it, something even on a really granular level of talking to, uh, talking to someone and asking them questions, whereas if you'd never spoken to that person or asked them a question, you'd never know them mm -hmm. and what you've learned from them. I think that if we examine so many of our relationships and friendships today that were really just born out of meeting somebody and asking them some questions. questions. Yeah. Hi, how are you? What are yes. you doing? Where are you yes. going? Yes. Yes. And that, I mean, and those are the things that define our lives. Yes. And you think about what happens if you never ask that question or never approach that person or never attempted to engage with them how different your life would really be mm -hmm. on so many levels mm -hmm. and you know there's probably a lot of circumstances where that you could say that was a positive <laughs> but uh, regardless of that I, I mean, we all learn from different people yes you know, whether it's a positive experience or not yes there's always something to be gleaned from it so I think I think if we take anything away from today it's it's a encouraging one another to ask questions. I think these things can be really grassroots, encouraging your children, your colleagues, your loved ones to ask questions and not diminish them for having that curiosity. And then two, just them on the most basic level of taking a moment to understand what our intention in a situation is and asking ourselves, what we're hoping to achieve. Yeah, I think I think that's the main thing. Follow the question, no matter what. Follow the question. And get the answer and then ask another question. You know, it's like, in my life, my conclusion today is I do not form group based on rituals. My friends are not about rituals, you know. My friends are people that have the same questions. And as my questions change, my friends will change. That's the way it is. That's how you get to answers. Mm -hmm. 
you ask questions. We're looking for answers because we're unsatisfied with what I've found so far. And let's keep asking the question until we get somewhere. And you keep moving. That's what, that's what I get from my, in an essence of everything I've been through right now until this point is I follow my questions. And I don't, I don't stop because that scientist <laughs> said it cannot be done. I just look at his math. What are you doing? Can I do it? Can I not do it? You know, and we eliminate rituals, we eliminate conflict. We connect to the intent, like you said, we realize we all have the same intent. That's it. That's it. Right on. <laughs>